Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening, and welcome to Privacy Piracy. This is KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Your host is Mari Frank. She's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of ID theft. Mari's testified many times in... U.S. Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and ID theft issues, and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. In fact, she had her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Evening, Murray. Who's your guest? I bet you remember him. We were recently in beautiful Annapolis, Maryland at a wonderful privacy conference. Yes, we were. And we met this great guy named Andy Sirwin, who's a wonderful attorney, author, privacy expert. In fact, we wanted to even interview him there, but we were so booked doing so many things that we said, you know what, Andy, we're going to get you on the way back when we're back in our offices and when you're back in your office and we can relax on the phone. And he's coming to us. Here we meet him in Maryland. But he's a California attorney right in San Diego. SoCal guy. Yeah, so let's tell our audience a little bit about him. Andrew Sirwin is a privacy attorney and the author of Information Security and Privacy, a Practical Guide to Federal, State, and International Law. By the way, he has he's the author of several other books too, but this is his brand new book. And I should tell you right now, because I just got this. And there is a a wonderful testimonial by Andy Roth, who we also met, who's the chief privacy officer of American Express. And this is what he says. He says, Sirwin's latest version is hands down the most comprehensive and current guide to global privacy laws available. He strikes the right balance of sophistication required by privacy experts and accessibility necessary to inform a broader audience. Simply put, Sirwin's practical approach to this evolving space makes information security and privacy an indispensable resource for privacy professionals at all levels. And as soon as it comes out, I'm getting it. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to need it. I've seen parts of it, and it's absolutely fabulous. Let me tell you a little bit more about Andy. Andy is the founding chair of the Privacy, Security, and Information Management Practice and is a partner in the San Diego office of Foley and Lardner LLP. He's a member of the Intellectual Property Litigation, Information Technology and Outsourcing, General Commercial Litigation, and the Trademark and Copyright Practice Groups. He's also a member of the Venture Capital, Emerging Technology, Life Sciences, and healthcare industry teams. That's a lot to know. He has extensive experience in privacy and security matters. Mr. Sowen also has unique experience 
in representing startup and internet companies because he served as president and general counsel of an online political magazine called InPolitics.com. He is also the author of several other books, International Marketing Law Handbook, and many others. He's done lots of speaking engagements, and he's written for the ABA. Oh, so many more. We have a lot more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. But I want to say that he was recently appointed to the Privacy and Legal Subcommittee of Privacy and Security Advisory Board of the California Health and Human Services Agency by the California Office of HIPAA Implementation. We're all worried about healthcare privacy. He was also recognized as a Southern California super lawyer in 2007 and 2008. You can learn more about him at Foley, that's F-O-L-E-Y dot com. And thank you so much, Andy, for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me, and uh, good to good to talk to you after the uh, the Annapolis trip as well. Yeah, it's fun to get to know people like that, and then get to interact with them and do things like this. Tell me something. You must be a little bit of a techie too, aren't you, Andy? I am. I uh, when I founded the internet company, I've been playing with computers for a long, long time, and really got into the internet when it first started, and enjoyed doing the content side, but really saw information management, privacy being part of that as being where uh, where the the fun was. Really going to happen years down the road. So I've, I've definitely do a lot of technology-related uh, stuff and enjoy enjoy the technology, which makes the work real fun. Because at least you understand what, what's happening when you're talking to all these companies about their technology. It's great. That's, that's right. Tell me, how did you get started in, in the law practicing this stuff? I mean, that was something that you just kind of leaned toward. Did you take a lot of that about security in law school? You know, when I went to law school, they didn't have much about that. No, you know, I, I was in the same boat there with law school. I ended up, uh, when I was at a prior firm, kind of getting into doing Internet stuff and started doing privacy work for uh, MP3 back when it was uh, it was sort of more more robust uh, company and really got interested in the, in the space and have been doing it really since about uh, 2000. So it's been a been a fun fun space to be in it's getting obviously a lot more interesting these days but it's been uh it's been a fun ride so far oh there's so many new issues so what is the biggest challenge that you face with focusing client clients on compliance i think you know it has been it, previously it was getting clients clients to understand really the value proposition for privacy because it's more than just avoiding risk i think as, as a lot of companies have shown if you do it the right way, it actually is a business opportunity. I think that that's one challenge. I think from a, a legal perspective, I do a lot in the internet and sort of behavioral advertising space, and there's not a lot of clear rules yet. Uh, I think we'll be there in a year or maybe a bit more. But uh, some of the some of the times you're you're kind of looking into your crystal ball and trying to figure out where uh, where the lines will get drawn, and that's one of the challenges of the practice right now. So we have a lot of people that drive by in Newport Beach here that, that are business people, and we have a lot of students here on the campus at the University of California and Irvine that are going into business, getting business uh, degrees. So what are some best practices for maintaining privacy or respecting privacy and also still marketing? Yeah, I think one of the one of the keys is always uh, to sort of borrow the analogy from from the environmental context, uh, minimizing your data footprint. When you're a company and and you know you really need to look critically at what you collect and why you collect it, and in in most cases, simply doing that can can mitigate a lot of your risk because there's many times where companies are collecting information 
that, that's really sensitive um, that isn't necessary for for their, their core business or for marketing. So that's really the first thing. Uh, I am, despite being a privacy lawyer, I, I am not as big a fan of the privacy concept per se in a lot of contexts as I am a sensitivity uh, sort of matrix approach. And I think that's another thing companies can do is not look more at, at the level of sensitivity of the data rather than necessarily its status as being private or not. And when you do that, you can, can mitigate some of your risk as well because you can really figure out where you need to put your resources. Okay. So when you're talking about sensitivity, you're talking about financial information, social security, what kinds of other information? Uh, those are Certainly those are examples. I think genetic information, as we're seeing with uh, the federal law uh, and probably the 40 states that have them, I think genetic information is another example. Um, you can debate where it falls on the scale, but uh, the content of electronic communications, not necessarily the records of them, uh, but the content of them themselves obviously receive, you know, very high protection under the law. So I think that's that's one thing you can do as a company is is kind of step in and say if you're dealing with medical information, financial information, uh, contents of communications, genetic genetic information, you know, really critically look at what you're dealing with that information. Do they find it hard to segregate that? You know, they, when companies collect information for marketing. Um, do you know? Do you find that they're having a difficult time segregating the sensitive from the non-sensitive? Uh, in many cases, they you know that is certainly an issue. I think one of the challenges is the the information you need for marketing, um, at least the contract information, isn't as problematic as what you see with obviously the targeted or behavioral advertising, which is exactly the point you raise, which is how do you sort of draw that line? Where, who do you market to? And if you're doing it on the internet, for example. How do you really know the person you're sending the the ad to is the person who typed in the search terms that drove the targeted ad? So I think it, it is sometimes a challenge. Right. And when you're trying to get people to comply, which I know that that's what you have to do as an attorney and you're working with all these companies, how do you show them that it's a value added? How do you do well, that? Well, I think obviously you've got some examples from the FTC of some enforcement actions that are uh, you know, certainly not something most companies want to, to have brought against them. But I also think what you've got to do is really show them that, you know, consumer loyalty is built through, um, at the end of the day, many of these companies trust. And consumers, one of the top, I think, issues of trust is, is frankly, information practices. And you can also look at, I know some of the work Larry Ponemon has done on, you know, the lack of return visits from customers after, after a data incident, and you can look at some of that data and really show that, you know, for customer attention and other purposes, it really is important to have, uh, you know, practices that are at least reasonable and that your customers will feel safe with. Right. How do you get them to do that? Besides showing them that you don't want to get in trouble with the FTC and have these enforcement actions, how do you get them excited? I mean, I know that you're excited about privacy. You've written yeah. so much about it. You know, how do you show them that, it's a, that really it's a value added rather than the stick of the compliance? Well, I think it's uh, it's gotten easier recently, uh, particularly with all the studies that are out there. I think also with the growth of the uh, chief privacy officer, you have people who are, are more sort of focused on this stuff, and I think you, you really align, um, you know, you align yourself with, with sort of the business goals. And I think that a key part of it is uh, I, when you go in and when I do one of these, either an audit or get to know a company for privacy, I really want to understand what their business objectives are. And I think when you listen and you hear that, you can then, 
you know, really understand where the company's going, where, where it needs to go from a privacy perspective, and make sure you've married those two sort of sets of goals together to make sure you get the most value for, the, for your client. Right. So I think that's it's really, as an attorney, going beyond saying, here are the 50 state laws um, that you need to comply with, but rather understanding what your client's true business objectives are and saying, you know, in essence, here's how doing this privacy project will enhance your business. Right. So when you talk about some of the genetic issues, what is the, the most important issue that you're talking to people? Like if they're self-insured, that's, a, that's an issue, right? If their health insurance is health, uh, self-insured or if they're a medical company, what are some of the most important things that you tell these companies with regard to medical privacy? Well, medical privacy is certainly, uh, you know, and, and in California, a, you know, complex issue. We have HIPAA at the federal level. We have uh, a very strong medical privacy law in California, and the you know the issue from the employer or the private company on on health information is obviously making sure you've got appropriate audit trails uh, to make sure if there is unauthorized access. Putting aside obviously the new security breach law we have here with the new definition, I should say, of of medical information being uh, coming under our security breach law in California. Uh, Let's you, explain that to our to our audience sure. too, so they know now that if they're the subject of a security breach, meaning that if someone has gotten unauthorized access to sensitive information and it hasn't been encrypted, that a company must disclose it to you. So now they've added to that sensitive information medical information. So. If someone, if let's say a pharmacy finds out that um, there has been un- unauthorized access to their data, they would also have to disclose. Am I right, Andy? Yeah, medical information and now health insurance information are within the security breach law in California. So yes, if there was an unauthorized acquisition of informa- of that type of information, a company would would have to disclose that in most cases. So. That's that's as you're seeing more of these laws are are sweeping in more types of information, and it's a recognition I think that obviously you know there's sensitive information out there other than just your name combined with your social security number or driver's license number. So what do you see happening with genetic privacy? I see that all over the the internet and, and yeah, all over I what's think, happening. Yeah, what what's yeah, that Yeah, I think I think what you're going to see is really sort of this this view that. Uh, people should have the ability to have genetic testing done without it being sort of counting against them in in most cases with insurance companies or with their employer. And I think as as you, I'm not sure the science is there yet to necessarily have, you know, all kinds of predictive analyses of, of people's health based on their genetic information right now. I'm sure it will be there sooner than, than we think. But I think that's one of the underlying principles of these laws is They want to encourage people to be able to have those tests to try and figure out disease predictions, but yet not have someone be excluded from a particular type of job or be discriminated against by their employer as a result of those tests. Now, there are, at least at the federal level, some exceptions when employers can do testing uh, in certain cases and insurance companies can use some of this information, but I think that's what you see. I think most companies at this point that I deal with aren't in, in large-scale collecting genetic information, yet part of that is California's had a law for a good bit of time. But I think as, as the science gets better, I'm sure there will be more people wanting to use that information. You know, I also worry about genetic information, for example, if, if it gets into the hands of 
creditors. Maybe if I want to buy a home and get a mortgage, maybe if they think I'm predisposed to getting cancer, they might not want to give me that mortgage. So I think there are some real far-reaching concerns about that information getting out just in the financial world as well. I think that's true. I think that's exactly right. So so what is our California law? What does that basically give us? What kind of protection does that with genetic privacy? It, it, it generally tracks the, the federal law, uh, although what it does is it, it puts greater restrictions on people's ability to do genetic testing without your consent. So, you know, California has a very strong law. You also have, as we all know, the, you know, right of privacy in, in the California Constitution. Right. So California has sort of in, in large scale basically said uh, genetic testing, particularly in the employment context or the insurance context, is just not, um, you know, in most cases not permissible. So the federal law, I will say, is, as they go, is obviously one that sort of sets a national floor, uh, and it, it, it is broader in certain ways than some of the state laws, but it's pretty, it's pretty broad, and I think it's generally consistent with California's. So what are some of the exceptions in which an insurance company or an employer can, can actually get that information? I would think, one, if we give it to them, if we allow it, if we give our permission. Yeah, obviously that's one. The employer, it, it is one where uh, you see in the federal law that uh, employees can, can be required to give genetic information if somehow the job could cause genetic damage uh, or there's sort of predispositions for certain types of uh, you know, conditions that could be relevant to the job. I think you are permitted to do that in some cases under federal law. Insurance is a much more you know, difficult issue. It's part of the, the whole HIPAA portability thing. So I, I think, again, what you see is, you know, like with other either preconditions to disease or prior disease history, you can't sort of have that used against you. Um, and really what the federal law did is just say that genetic information will be treated as other medical information under ERISA and under HIPAA. Right. Uh, that's one of the things it did is sort of add that yeah, add genetic information into HIPAA. So what you what you see is largely that and the remedies tend to flow from the ERISA remedies that already existed for uh, discrimination in group plans. Yeah. You know, we've talked about HIPAA with um, several people on, on this, you know, on this show. Um, and one of the things that, that we keep hearing is that HIPAA is really a disclosure law than, real, than it is a privacy law. What, are you, what is your take on that? Well, yeah, I mean, HIPAA is a, it's more almost, it's a portability law, and I think it, it ties into where, uh, frankly, the committee I serve on and, and where medical records are going, which is this whole interoperability concept. Uh, you know, HIPAA obviously has a privacy rule, but, the, you know, HIPAA is, is a 1P, 1P HIPAA acronym with no privacy in the title, despite what some people some people think sometimes so it's not a privacy law it there were privacy and security implications because of the uh, sharing of information that that the um, that really was done as part of the portability requirements of the law so I, I would agree it is a um, I mean it's a disclosure law to the extent that it, it relates to people being able to move insurance carriers around and I think again you get into interoperable records which then is the really the next the next step of this, which is sort of records that uh, people can have access to and providers can have access to, which is a little different than the personal health records you're starting to see. But that's uh, that's where I think the, the, the medical privacy issues are going to be 
really fought out is in the interoperability uh, debate. Yeah, I mean, it makes, on one hand, it makes a lot of sense where we saw recently with the Iowa floods, we saw with Katrina, we worry about, you know, earthquakes here in California and what it could do to our medical records. So on one hand, it's great if you think about a central repository or a place that we can go online and get it if, God forbid, we need to get medical care. But what are some of the privacy implications and the concerns about these different organizations, whether it be Google or Microsoft or whoever, holding that information for us? Sure. I mean, I think the debate's a little different on what I'll say is the, you know, the EHR, the electronic health record or interoperable record versus the, the PHR, which is the personal health record. I think in the personal health record context, you've got a situation where, as we talked about earlier, people are consenting to it. So if I go give Google my medical information, that's sort of one one privacy path, and obviously people, before they do that, need to be familiar with what the privacy, you know, obligations of Google in that case would be, uh, how their information will be used, when they can access it, when Google can access it, uh, and that type of thing. So that that's one track. I think the interoperable record goes down a slightly different track, which really deals with what, um, how do you deal with exactly the situation you talked about, Katrina. You have people who don't have their records don't know what conditions they may have, don't know what medications they, they may be taking. Um, so, you know, as a society, we want to try and get people good health care and having access to record 24-7 in a, in a way that would ensure their availability in a natural disaster is generally a good thing. Uh, it'll be a cost-saving thing for the state. It would be good for all the patients. So then you get into a debate of how do you actually do it. Um, we have a system that's similar uh, we have the consumer reporting agencies right now that do this with financial information. So it certainly can be done. The question is really how and by whom and, and what technology do you use to ensure that the, you know, the error in medical records is, is low because it's one thing to have a, you know, it's, a, it's certainly a hassle to have a, a mistake in your consumer report, um, which you can take care of, but having a, a mistake in your medical record obviously can have broader implications. Yeah, that's a great point to make. And I want to bring up that, you know, even with consumer reporting agencies, 70% of consumer reports have errors, and 29% of those are enough to keep you from getting a job or a credit card or a loan or whatever. And that's according to the U.S. PERG, Public Interest Research Group. And then when we get to medical records, Andy, I hear from a lot of victims of medical identity theft. And that is such a challenge to deal with because the doctors don't want to correct or change the records. What do you think about getting a law that is similar to the credit reporting agency, you know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, in which the medical records must be, that they must delete, you know, erroneous information? Right now, Deborah Peel, who was on our show, said, you you know, you can't do that. You can't delete that. They'll just put... Um, an addendum in the file that says that this person says they were a victim of identity theft, but they don't take off the erroneous information. What, mm-hmm. what is your take well, on that? Well, the challenge there obviously is the doctors and the medical providers have, you know, extensive liability for malpractice and other types of claims. So I'm sure that you know the risk, the risk they face is driving a lot of that, um, a lot of that behavior. So I think if that's something that's done, there's got to be some way to make sure that they that the uh, hospitals, physicians, and other medical providers wouldn't have liability if for some reason there was information that was, in fact, correct that was thought to be erroneous that was taken out. So right. I think that's, that's the challenge is you, you, 
Um, obviously, because medical records are, are so important, you want to have them accurate, whether that, you know, and, and having patients judge necessarily. It's easy for me to say, I didn't open that credit card account, but it's not as easy for me maybe to say, I didn't take that drug when I may have. Right. And you don't want, you know, patient outcomes affected by um, erroneous information from the patient either. Right, it could kill somebody if they if they think that they have another disease. I know there was a woman that spoke to us here in Orange County who someone had uh, stolen her identity and had a lot of mental problems, and it was keeping her from getting a job. Mm. And then we had another woman whose identity was stolen, and the woman who stole the identity got health care, and she had HIV. <laughs> so well. we're talking about some heavy stuff, but, you know, even with... Uh, financial identity theft, which I deal with a lot as well, it's not easy for the people to prove who they are. I mean, even with that, they don't want to believe you. You are basically guilty till you prove yourself innocent with your police report and with documentation to prove that that indeed is not you. You never lived at that address, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me that it would be very much the same that they would have that they would have a you know have to have an affidavit have to prove that they were a victim of identity theft. At least it was, you know, for identity theft, it might be a little easier to prove that the records must be deleted than right. if you're just saying it's an error, right? Right, <clears throat> right. But we yep. don't even yeah. have help for victims. Uh, do you think it's that we need to actually change the HIPAA to include that, or what would we need to do to get that changed in terms of legislation? Well, I think, again, it's probably all of this sort of dovetails into how do you do, if you do interoperable records, and you assume that is a, you know, one, a good thing, and two, will, act, will happen, which I tend to assume both, um, I think that issue is going to have to be dealt with in, in legislation and the implementation of it. So um, would it be separate legislation, or would it be would it be to amend HIPAA, or what do you think? Uh, I think it would be either to amend HIPAA or the California uh, medical privacy law. You've already seen last year they did a, a, an amendment to uh, make sure they covered electronic health records in the CMIA. Uh, so I think you know that's probably, if I had to guess, at least at the state level, where where this will happen. And so I think if if it happens at the federal level. Um, you know, obviously, we don't have a federal identity theft law in in any form. So, you know, I well, I'd we probably, do criminally. We do yeah, criminally. We yeah, do. Yeah. We do. But we don't have any. You know, we have a portion of the whole. You know, the thing fair with and FACTA, accurate. Yeah, but yes. you really don't have the same. You have the credit freeze right, but you don't have the same rights under. You know, under federal law, you do under all these all the state laws. So right. I think the the reality is it's probably going to be driven at the state level. Uh, given where we live, I suspect it'll probably be California driving it. Um, although healthcare tends to be, you know, you have less impact across state lines with healthcare, though you still do because California people tend to, I would say, go to California institutions. But uh, I, I think it's going to happen at the state level, uh, and I think it'll happen as part of the debate of how do you deal with if you have electronic records. Uh, you know, another issue we haven't talked about is not even the identity theft issue, but if you have conflicting medical records from doctors, once they're all yes. in one thing, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with a doctor who says this person has this disease and this person, the other doctor says it's a different disease and having an accurate record is a challenge. And right. I think that's, you know, that's why I think this, this probably is subsumed into that debate. Right. I know even I went in for to the hospital one night in the emergency room after fainting from, from eating something that got me sick. And, um, and they mixed, when I saw my, I asked to see my medical records and the medical records mixed me up with another man. 
and mm. and you know coming in for an entirely different thing and yeah. they didn't want to correct those records it was amazing to me how challenging that is so i think we do need some and of course you're right california being that we are a privacy conscious state we have privacy um, in our constitution then we probably have to lead the way as we usually do uh, I think that's probably what will happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let me just introduce you again. We are speaking with Andy Serwin, who is a privacy expert. He is also chair of the Privacy, Security, and Information Management Practice at Foley and Lardner LLP in San Diego. He is also the author of several books, but his newest book is Information Security and Privacy, A Practical Guide to Federal, State, and International Law. What is that? How many pages is that? Uh, it, the proof is not final, but it's probably about 3,500 pages in this, this go-round. So oh. it's, it was, uh, it's up from 2,000, so it's, it's, not, it's not small. <laughs> have you been, like, going crazy for the last year doing this? Update? I have. I have. It, uh, you know, the, the, first, the first iteration, it had a decent amount of coverage, and the second one was, was better. This one is the one where I really feel I've gotten... Uh, most, if not all, the relevant talk, uh, topics in there, and then I've gotten much broader coverage of a lot of the laws as well. So, and uh, you know, I'm I'm glad uh, I, I would I have all the F, the Federal Trade Commission enforcement actions in there. And there was a period where they were hitting them. Uh, they had like three or four come out in in two weeks, and uh, I was scrambling to get everything in. And then the last thing was the the GINA law, the uh, Genetic Information uh, Privacy Law at the federal level. I had to kind of push that in right at the last minute, so I'm sure uh. my editors will be quite happy that uh, I'm done writing. <laughs> and you know what will happen is next year you're going to have to do a huge update because yep. there is just so much happening at lightning speed. So what prompted you to actually do this book? You know, I'd done a book on Internet marketing uh, for, for Thompson West and, and did a about an 80-page privacy overview chapter and I'd been practicing in the area for a while and really looked around and said there's not a good privacy book uh, out there that that's really covers all the topics. There were good books sort of on, on HIPAA. There were some good books on Gramm-Leach-Bliley, but there really wasn't one that sort of tackled the entire, the entire topic. And having now written what I think is that book, I can understand why, because it took <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so it, uh, I, I looked around, and I obviously had the relationship with, uh, with Thompson West and you know, knew that I would get this thing into West Law and uh, thought that it was, the, you know, if, if someone was going to do the book and uh, having Thompson West publish it would be a good thing, and I figured I would be that person. So Yeah, you almost could have done it in four volumes, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you probably could, it's going to break your back just to pick up the book. But... Yep, yep, that's right. So is the target audience lawyers or business people? Who is it? Well, it's really both. I mean, what I try to do is, obviously, there's an extensive amount of coverage of, of uh, the laws. All the state security breach laws uh, that have passed at this point are in there. Uh, I have pretty extensive coverage of the state wiretap laws. I have um, all of the security freeze laws. Uh, on the state financial privacy side, I've got most of the you know the larger state's laws in there. So for a lawyer, it's a great resource to say, you know, does Tennessee have a social security number law, and you can look in there and say, you know, yes or no, and I've got all the social security number laws uh, that, that I could find out there uh, covered. So from that perspective, it's a great resource for lawyers. What I try to do also, though, is write portions of it, um, not just the statutory analysis, but portions of the book 
that would be overviews, that would be, you know, practice tips that would be accessible to the general public. So, you know, business people could read it and say, you know, wow, never thought of that issue. Here's, here's what I need to think about. So it's hopefully targeted towards both. And, you know, chief privacy officers in organizations, whether they be an attorney or not an attorney, which a lot of them are not attorneys, really would need this as a handbook just on their shelf. Because if you're, uh, you know, in a business, you're going to have to deal with employee privacy, yep. insurance privacy, data security, <laughs> spyware and phishing. All these things that you have in here are just wonderful, really. It's a it's a great thing to have right in front of you so you can pick it up and say, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do about this? It's great. Yeah, and frankly, part of my motivation was I was dealing with all these laws a lot with, with clients. I figured uh, I may as well have it in one one spot, and this turned out to be it. So it is, uh, it is, it is a good thing to have done. I'm glad I did it. But and also, when they tell you that your your fees are too high, then tell them, look, get this book, and then look at that first, and then you'll you'll cut down on what you have to ask me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, I even do that with my books. I say, look, you know, but you don't have to hire me. Just look at this first, and then if you still have a problem, then call me. There you go. Yep. Yep. So you've also written an, a fairly new article on privacy entitled Privacy 3.0, The Principle of Proportionality. What is the principle? Well, it is uh, really that privacy should not be, and, and this gets into my sort of core belief about sensitivity really driving um, the law, or at least that it should drive the law regarding information management. And the point of it is that um, sensitivity is the critical analysis, and that the privacy restrictions on put into law should be proportional to the risk. And really, the risk is driven by sensitivity. So, everyone loves walking into, you know, your your retailer to go buy a TV on credit you can get in, you know, five to ten minutes. Right. Uh, that can only happen with information sharing. Now, it doesn't mean information sharing should be sort of an open floodgate, but it means that, you know, at least in the United States as opposed to other other countries, we tend to like to have our information shared, or at least we tend to like the benefits of information sharing. So my point is you've really got to focus whether you're an organization or whether you're the federal government passing laws on the high value targets here and the sensitive data, whatever that is. And what I did is I took that sort of point and really went beyond what I think Prosser and uh, Brandeis posited as, as really the privacy theory being the right to be let alone, because I don't think one of the points I make is I don't think that works in the Facebook or MySpace world these days, because a lot of people, particularly uh, certainly younger than me, uh, enjoy sharing their information and don't want to be let alone. They want right. the information out there. So privacy theory has to fit that reality and that reality matters really more about how sensitive the data is, not whether it's quote-unquote private. Yeah, in the article, which I have right in front of me, you, you kind of give a, a really nice overview of the history of privacy in our country. And that, I think, is real helpful. So when we're talking about Brandeis, the, you know, the right to be left alone, in some ways we want to be left alone. Like, I don't even think young people really want to be surveilled all the time. Right. You exactly. Exactly. So no, I mean, that's we, certainly true. But they, especially you know, when then, you're at a red light and you go, and you kind of just run through the yellow. You know? Right. Not that either of us would ever do that. Of course, no, no, no. We would never. Would. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But things like that, you know, when you you don't want somebody constantly looking at you, and there have been some challenges with Facebook, even with the young people. It's just kind of a different mindset for privacy. 
I don't. That's right. That's right. And I think it's really you get into concepts of of managing information um, and, and really trying to to have the the protections tailored. And, and frankly, one of the the people I enjoy reading the most is is Dan Solove, who's written several books on this, and oh, yeah. including The Digital Person, which is a, a phenomenal phenomenal book. And uh, you know, I think I think we're all sort of we all know what. Actually, have you read the his, his The Future of, in, of uh, Reputation on the Internet? Um, uh, you know, I have. He actually sent me a copy of it. You've got to read it. To, oh, it's, I, it. I, uh, I, that is on my to-do list. I've been reading nothing other than uh, my own book, Bruce, <laughs> unfortunately. But, I know, uh, but you have to. I mean, we. Yep. I read The Digital Person the first time we interviewed Dan. And the second time, of course, I had to read his newer book, which is, you know, The Future of Reputation on the Internet. And i got to tell you, it is a thousand times better even. Oh my God. Wow. It's incredible book. And it really goes into that whole issue of like that surveillance, you know, when you've got the, the girl who's on the, he talks about this, this YouTube thing that went up where um, this girl's sitting on the subway and her dog takes a poop and she won't clean it up and everybody's outraged. And then they put it all over the internet and she is totally uh, destroyed because of that. You know, whereas if it was just without anybody taking it and putting it on the Internet, she would have been booed by the people there. And that would have been the end of it. She goes yep. on her life and that's it. But this way, this will never I mean, she will go down. It, it, it'll never be gone. Yeah, well, no, and, it's, and you've seen that with I, I, I saw that with I won't name the law firm, but uh, thankfully it wasn't uh, it wasn't one I've worked at. So uh, <laughs> where someone had first gotten, uh, I guess, voice over IP phones and the voicemails go into you know, for us, a wave file in our inbox, and a, an opposing counsel in a case had left this very, very vitriolic uh, message, and it was forwarded around the internet within, I'd say, probably 20 minutes. Uh, right. And you know, it's just it's a it's a different the the information age is such a has a different cycle and just speed of how fast information is out there and how permanent it is. Cause right, and it could be it. wrong. It could be wrong. You know, right. there and and sometimes somebody puts something in the newspaper or on a blog, and then it gets transferred, and so that's an aspect of privacy too. And how do you how do you redeem yourself from that when right. it's really not even true? I mean, we've yeah. heard of and, all you know, those you see, things. I mean, actually, the the book is uh, I've covered I think thirteen foreign countries, and one of the interesting things I, I learned from from writing, I think it was. Uh, Israel and, and Finland, uh, both of them have a concept of sort of getting to set the record straight if there's a, uh, you know, a, a mistake or, or inaccurate information in a, in a publication. Yeah. So, you know, that's not the typical way the United States de- deals with these issues. And with the, you know, Communications Decency Act here, obviously the, the path that Congress has taken is a little different, but, uh, you know, it's a challenge. It's a real yeah, challenge. Yeah. And, you know, we've heard recently about Ninth Circuit Court judges and what has happened to them. And, you know, recently I read uh, a rebuttal to that that just said, wait a minute, that was, all the all those articles were really uh, wrong and they they weren't truthful. They were or they were half truths. So how do you redeem your whole reputation when it's been totally destroyed on the Internet? Uh, very scary stuff. Yep. You know, there's a new and I just I haven't gone on it, but I read about it in the Daily Journal, and I also heard another attorney talking to us about that. There's a website where you get rated by consumers um, on this website, and if somebody has a grudge against you or something like that, they could be a crazy person, and then that totally ruins your reputation as an attorney. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like the state bar that puts up whether you've had 
actual complaints against you and what the result was or you were put on probation or you were disbarred, you know, where you've got some kind of agency that really looks at it from hopefully an objective perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this whole issue of privacy where you got information privacy, then you got First Amendment right privacy, Fourth Amendment, it's it's insane. I mean, yeah. it's it's a tough one. So what single area of privacy law would you change if you had your druthers? I would, and the, the, I'd be curious on your thoughts, I think the, the fact that we have notice the security breach laws that don't at least let companies factor in risk of harm is probably the one thing I'd change. And the, and the reason really is twofold. One, um, I deal with this stuff all the time, and I'm almost at the point where I just don't even read those notice letters when I get them anymore. Uh, and two, I really learned that when the, the Veterans Administration breach happened, and I started getting emails, and I've never served in the armed services, saying, your information was compromised in this recent breach, Send us your name and social security number so we can, you know, help you with it. Oh, the phishing emails. Exactly. The phishing emails on the big security breach. And I think, you know, you want to make sure consumers get notice, um, but you want to make sure they get notice when it's really relevant. And the challenge is if there's a big breach that doesn't have a high degree of risk of identity theft, are you better off giving notice or are you better off not giving notice because of, you know, obviously there's, there's, you know, there's downside. And I'm not sure... Some of the state laws recognize that. I think well, that's Andy, probably. Let's look at our. Let's look at our state law because I, that's the one that I know best that I worked on. We, we, you know, you are at risk at identity theft if your social security number was compromised, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. that's we pretty much said it's not just your name and address. Uh, we said it would be such things as well now healthcare information, health insurance information, and genetic information, et cetera, like that. But also, it's, if it's your account number, your complete account number, or other information. So if that is not encrypted, then you are at risk. So I think at least our California law does put that, um, you know, does give you a, a higher threshold before you have to notify Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the, the, you know, the challenge in particular with California is I think, um, you know, if you, let's say, lose a laptop that you know was not stolen for information, um, or at least you have good indication given the the facts and circumstances of the theft, there's certainly a risk. Uh, No one's saying there's no risk, but really what you've got to do is balance that risk versus, you know, the sort of scope fatigue of getting, you know, 20 of these a year if you're a consumer and the, the fishing on the back end. And I think that's really the challenge of where the laws need to sort of be harmonized to say, you know, what what exactly is, um, when is society willing to say that notice should be given as a policy matter versus when we just say, no, you know, that, that risk is not high enough. Because not every, obviously, yeah, but what not company- every loss of social security number is going to be a, lead to a reasonable likelihood of identity theft. And I think that's the challenge in the well, area. Well, you know, that that is where we disagree because I get, I'm the one who deals with the victims all the time. You deal with the companies all the time. And, you know, I deal with companies too. I think that that the way the law was written was there was the stick and then there was the, you know, the honeypot. And that is if you encrypt the data, the, the sensitive data, not all the data, but if you encrypt it, you have no duty to disclose. You don't have to notify anybody. 
So that was the, the, I guess, the leverage to try and get people or companies to take the data and protect it more than they had been d- protecting it. So didn't it do that? Didn't Wasn't that really? A- uh, you know, if, I, I think, it, I'm not sure that did. I think it, you know, where you get into, I think if we're going to implement sort of a data security type um, standard, I mean, we have that obviously in uh, California law as is, and I think that really the question is, if the goal is to get data security and say you got to encrypt this type of information, um, I think the challenge is obviously then you get into this debate of what's encryption, um, you know. And I've had that debate with companies as well. Yes. But you know, I think th- then you really just need to say here's what here's how we want you to treat this data. And the the challenge is if that's the goal, I think that may be you know that's certainly not a a bad goal to say certain types of data should be encrypted right um the question is is it the right way to say to do it in a way that basically gets consumers to stop paying attention or could to to really valuable information or lead to further identity theft because you know five percent of the people who get a notice get caught in a phishing scam and the risk of identity theft from the incident was two percent on balance what's the better outcome and that's the that's the challenge. I'm not saying necessarily California law got it wrong, but I think that's where there's got to be some balancing to say, you know, what are the relative weights of risk here, and how do we address that? Well, you know, what about if companies would be real clear about what exactly was taken? You know what I mean? Well, I think so this, I you think get that's... into the debate because, frankly, under I mean, then this is the challenge with having state security breach laws. Under uh, Massachusetts law, you can't disclose the nature of the breach. So you're already doing multiple different letters anyway. And I think that's one of the challenges in the area is uh, I would rather see a national standard, whatever that is. You can debate what that should be. But at this point, you're really doing three different letters if you have a a nationwide breach um, because some states require you to disclose the the exact type of information and what happened. Uh, I could debate why that may not be such a good idea frankly, well, either. Well, at least if I know that the information that was stolen, let's say, was my account number and my social security number wasn't taken. So I can cancel that account and I don't have mm-hmm. to worry. If it's my social security number, I'm going to put a security freeze on my credit report so no one can get right. that. And I'm going to do some other things. So yep. so how how we as, as privacy consumer advocates, we tell people, well, if you know, Find out what exactly was taken. Because if it was just your credit card number, you know what? You can cancel a credit card number. It's not a huge deal, okay? It's, you're not going to be in, in a lot of trouble. So I think companies can really save themselves a lot of aggravation if they tell them what's stolen. If it's just like if it's for people like in the TJ Maxx, if it was just a credit card, if they can say, well, it was your credit card, that's not a big deal. You can cancel the credit card, get a new credit card. However, if it's your debit card, that is a little bit more dangerous. You better just maybe even get rid of your your checking account number. So depending on what was stolen or acquired by an unauthorized person, that leads me to tell people what they need to be doing and what they can do. And if you just say there was a breach and we don't know what it was, then... You know, then people panic because they don't know what they can do. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I think the I think being legally required not to disclose the nature of the breach is a bad thing. Yeah. Frankly. And I think you know that's that's again you know we, you get into what would be good here. I mean, I think a you know having sort of one type of letter that goes out saying you know here's what the breach was, 
you know, here's what, you know, to the extent you can say, we don't think it's likely to lead to identity theft or it is. Um, you know, I think that the more information consumers have at a certain level on that stuff, the better. And I think the, the challenge just is sort of navigating that sort of minefield of all the inconsistent state requirements out there. You know, Andy, when we have from from Javelin studies and also from the Federal Trade Commission and Gartner studies, most people, and we're talking at least 58% of the people who become victims of identity theft, have no clue how it happened to them. There are some people that think that it happened from a breach. Some people think it's because they lost their wallet. That's that's a little bit better. Some people know where it came from or can guess or learn later. But most people don't know. And, and so to say that there is, we don't think that there's a risk of identity theft from this, that that really, I think, is too hard for companies to say that because most companies don't learn that someone's a victim of identity theft until the consumer tells them. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on your situation. I think in many cases you're right. I think if, for example, you lose a USB drive that is not encrypted but that requires, you know, that has data that can only be read by a particular type of computer, is there a high degree of risk of identity theft? Probably not. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I think you're right. I think, you know, the or reality if there's is, a password at least, you know, something. Right. But I mean, you know, that, so that's kind of the challenges, you know, I mean, the, the breaches you see, I mean, obviously you have the, you know, you can have the big breach where, you know, some hard drives lost with, you know, tons of consumer information and it's just wide, right out in the open. And I think that's sort of one track, but you get these, you know, situations where someone loses a USB drive that, um, again, may require very specialized equipment or at least require special programs to read um, that your run-of-the-mill identity thief isn't going to have. Uh, is that a high degree of likelihood of theft or identity theft? Probably not. I mean, right, I don't know that right. I'd want to say that under, you right, know. Right, right. You but don't so know. I think that's the challenge is, you know, not all security breaches are the same. And I think, you know, your point is very valid, which is, you know, if you're dealing with sort of the crown jewels of, of identity theft, the social security numbers, and names in a way that's that's very very public. How you respond as a company to that breach is much different than, you know, frankly, one of the challenges with California law is what is an account number. I mean, it, it, certainly certain things are, and I think we'd all agree bank accounts are. But there's types of, you know, account numbers, if you will, that aren't necessarily really that readily or that likely to lead to identity theft, or, or couldn't lead to identity theft. And do you have to give notice there? You know, right. So, I mean, that's that's the challenge of, of the space. And well, it's, uh, unique unique account numbers, I think, that would be that that that's when we were talking about all this. And, you know, I sit as an advisor to the Office of Privacy Protection. So we debated all this stuff when we were thinking about it. We were talking about unique account numbers, like your unique number for your health insurance is no longer your social. So it's a unique number. All right. Or your unique number for your um, brokerage account. So I think unique is the word that makes it more more helpful because if it's unique, it's only for you. You're the only one that has that account. So then it is more at risk than if there's, you know, 100 people that have that account number. Yeah, yeah. no, certainly that's certainly true. But, I mean, it's, you know, you, then you get into a debate of can you actually, do you have to have credit associated with it? And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you get all sorts, as you know, all sorts of weird situations with these with these breaches. But it's a... It definitely is a an area where I think you know at least a common standard is uh, something that probably makes sense for everybody. Right. I think it's really 
scary now. We just last, you know, just recently we we interviewed Byron Akohita, who is a USA Today reporter who wrote a book called um, Zero Day Threat about all the incredible hacking and ways of of the ways that people can get into these companies. You know, it's a real scary time right now. And it seems to me that data protect, not encrypting or not having some kind of data protection for a company would really be seen as negligent nowadays. Everybody knows about these security breach laws. What What is the problem with asking companies to to encrypt? Is it because there's so many challenges in the encryption of themselves? Uh, I think there's a couple things. I think one, in each, in, in, you know, the FTC has obviously been very careful not to set a technology standard. Right. I think one issue is anytime you talk about encryption, um, you've got to define what that is at some level. And as technology changes, um, you've sort of got to factor that in. So I think that's one thing. I think you know, another factor is what exactly do you encrypt? Do you, you know, companies have different data protection obligations based on, you know, again, going back to my favorite topic, the sensitivity of the data. So I think simply saying encrypt everything isn't a good idea. Um, saying encrypt nothing, you know, you can debate whether that's a good policy decision or not. But I think there's got to be some risk-benefit um, analogy here that says, you know, here here's what's sensitive and here's where we we can sort of you know, link the encryption to how it can stop a specific threat that's that's of, of import. Right. It makes sense to just encrypt the sensitive information, which makes you have to segregate that, and then um, then it's less costly. I guess the question is, is it more costly to have to disclose and notify than it is to encrypt? Is it? Well, that's, you know, that's exactly, you know, that's one of the debates you have is, uh, you know, how much is the cost of encryption going to be versus how much are you going to pay if there's a breach? And the breaches are certainly not, uh, I mean, the, the small run-of-the-mill, you know, breach or potential breach, uh, because one of the other quirks with California is it's a reasonable belief of acquisition, um, not acquisition. Um, not that, access, not just access, right. right. And, well, but I, I think that's the question is, does a reasonable belief in acquisition mean access? And I think that's the challenge. Um, and when we talked about that, we said, "Well, look, if, if you just take a peek, that's not a, that's not acquisition. That's access. Acquisition is did it, did you take a peek and then take it with you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that well, was ex- the end. yeah, it, it, uh, exactly. And I think that's you see those cases with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. There's a couple cases out there, but I think the um, you know the challenge is when you've got a reasonable belief standard, uh, reasonable sometimes in the eye of the beholder. And right. that, that's one of the, the issues you see, um, certainly as well. Right. Well, we are speaking right here with Andy Servan, who is the author of Information Security and Privacy, A Practical Guide to Federal, State, and International Law. He's got some great testimonials. I can't wait to get it. It's just going to be hot out on the press. It says this book, one of the testimonials says, this book is the only comprehensive guide to privacy information security laws that impact companies. So if, you know, if you're driving by and you're worried about these issues of employee privacy, healthcare privacy, internet privacy, financial privacy, all these things, you're going to find it in Andy's book. Andy, so let me ask you something. What what best practices do you recommend companies take re- regarding information management? 
What are what are the things that you recommend? We've only got Lloyd says it's just about four minutes left. Sure. Well, I think number one is really assessing what data you collect. That that's really I think the starting point because um, once you understand that, you can make decisions about you know whether you need the data or not, what laws apply to you. So I think that's point one is really critically looking at all the information that flows into your company. I think then point two is assessing: Do I need this? Do I not? Should I delete it? Should I delete it after a certain period of time? Um, that's, I think, sort of point two. Uh, and I think really it, it trying to understand the matrix of these laws now is, you know, very difficult at best. I think um, restricting the use to the extent you can, eliminating the use, um, you can't always, of Social Security numbers is, is a good step uh, because, frankly, in many cases, that not only reduces the risk of, of identity theft with your your customers, but it also, frankly, cuts off your, in many cases, your need to give notice of a security breach, because if there's a breach with no social, uh, for a lot of other types of information, you don't have to give notice. So I think those are sort of three, you know, three sort of things people can do just right out of the, right out of the gate. I think uh, a couple other tips would be really look at your employee policies and your manuals. Make sure, one, you've got enough information in there so your employees understand what you believe they should be doing with information and also make sure they understand what their, you know, their rights or in many cases lack thereof are on your systems. Uh, making sure your employees understand you're going to monitor their emails if you choose or, you know, if you choose to go that path is also uh, an issue I've seen companies have have issues with uh, because they haven't dealt with up front. Considering an incident response plan also, um, you know, I think is, is, is a good thing to look at uh, because, you know, having that in place if there's a major breach certainly makes everyone um, function a little bit better. And having sort of people identified who you're going to call, who your team's going to be, is also a good good first step. Great. So would you give the website for uh, your law firm right now? Sure. It is uh, foley.com, and F-O-L-E-Y.com. And how can they get your book? And I'm going to just say the name of your book. Well, why don't you just tell us the name of your new book again? Uh, yeah, it is the second edition of Information, Security, and Privacy, A Practical Guide to Federal, State, and International Law. And it is published by Thompson West, and their uh, website is, uh, I believe, thompsonwest.com. And you can just type my name in the search, and uh, it will come right up. All right. Terrific. Well, we thank you so much for joining us, Andy. You're going to have to come back, especially next year when you update the book again. <laughs> I will certainly do that. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for all that you do, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here. You can also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy where you can download podcasts, actually listen to archive interviews, and see who's coming up as our guest. Thank you very much, Lloyd, and thank you for joining us. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.